Thank you for downloading the PR Week, PR Week's weekly podcast. For more podcasts as well as breaking news, visit PRWeek.com. Hello and welcome to the PR Week, PR Week's regular weekly roundup of everything that matters in the worlds of PR and communications. My name's Steve Barrett. I'm the Editorial Director, PR Week, going to guide you gently through another show. Not many left this year now, difficult to believe. We're into December and just uh, two or three shows left. But we've got a fantastic guest for you today. It's Lisa Ross, who's the US CEO at Edelman, and really pleased to have you on the show. Hi, Lisa. How are you doing? Hi, Steve. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to this all month. Yes. Well, we're only on the 1st of December, but yes. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's so funny, Steve. As soon as I looked at the date, I was like, he's going to correct me. He's going to say something. Uh, Diana, you probably knew this was coming, too. So I have been excited about this since it was agreed that we were going to do it. And then when I saw you, Steve, and... um, I guess uh, earlier this year at the 40 under 40. Yes. Uh, so I have been looking forward to it for a while. Let's say that. Yeah, that was a great night celebrating Jonathan Jordan and a, a great uh, Edelman exec on the West Coast. And, we, and uh, as Lisa alluded to there, we've got Diana Bradley with us. PR Week Diana on the show. How are you doing, Diana? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time since we did a show together. It's been too long, so great to have Diana on the show. We're going to chat to Lisa, then we'll talk about a few current issues. There's a new virus around, new strain, om- Omicron. I can't, you have to avoid saying Omnicom, don't you? Um, <laughs> about uh, potential impacts. And uh, I'm sure Omnicom execs are loving that, not. But anyway, we'll talk about TikTok, uh, Kyle Scheel, and this come and go fake meal controversy. Diana's been all over oh, that boy. story. Black Friday, we'll wrap up the campaigns there and we look forward to holiday activations and see what do they matter anymore as much in this sort of uh, hybrid digital world. We'll, we'll find out. New leadership at Twitter, Jack Dorsey, is he's gone. And uh, what's the future of that social network? And we'll talk about the agency space. Lots of uh, M&A deals going on. ICR has just taken an investment from a global investment group. But first of all, we're going to talk to Lisa. Lisa. You are, what, six months into the U.S. CEO role, May 2021, I think you joined. And um, tell us how you've been approaching that role, a a fantastic job to to get your teeth into. And uh, sure, it's been a pretty crazy six months on, on a number of levels. Tell us a bit about it. So it has been crazy. And with most things that are crazy, it has been a ton of fun. Um, and it's been uh, challenging and it's been inspiring and exciting. And um, when I'm asked this question, I find myself saying the following. 90% of the time, Steve and Diana, I really kind of shake myself like, oh, my God, this is the best job on earth for me. Um, and but 10% is hard, like really hard and really like too intense and challenging, but 90% of it, I I almost have to shake myself and say, I can't imagine where else I could be, what else I could be doing, where I would feel as fulfilled and encouraged and hopeful and, um, and satisfied as I do in, in this job. 
That's great. I mean, I think 10%, 10.90 is a pretty good balance. So I think we'd all settle for that. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, you've been at Edelman four years. You president of DC at the start, came over from APCO, and, um, and you were COO from uh, 2022, May 21. So um, four years in post, and uh, you had uh, worked at other agencies like Ogilvy and Fleischmann, and then uh, famously worked with the, uh, the Clinton administration. So bringing a lot of... DC chops to the business. How has that impacted the way uh, we often hear about how you know people who've worked in politics really thrive in the corporate PR world? And uh, you can think of many, many client-side people, especially who've been come from that world, whether it's Jay Carney at Amazon or Josh Ernest at United Airlines and many others. Mm -hmm. How have you brought that sort of perspective to running the biggest PR agency in the world, the US operations of it? I think the thing, so one thing to remember is, um, as you probably have seen and know, my, my jaunt in the public sector was the um, change for me. I have been an agency person and a comms person my entire career. And um, when I went into the Clinton administration, that was the thing that was different for me. And I was different from others there because most of them are political people. Um, and every once in a while they do private. And I was a private person, private industry person who said, let me try the public sector. And I think what it has allowed me to do is to bring the following perspective. Um, like nothing is as bad as it seems at the time and nothing is as, as great as it seems at the time. Um, I think it's allowed me um, a, a public policy lens to look at everything that we're doing, which fits particularly well for our Edelman portfolio right now, which is all about like purpose, like saying to our clients, where can you make a difference? How can you address a societal ill? And for us, you know, traditionally we've been a brand and a corporate firm and those have been our strengths, but now our sweet spot is it's great um, to have both of those. But if you really are trying to drive systemic change, you have to have a public policy uh, uh, change at the end of your game. And so, and that's an area that we are really thinking into. So I think my background has allowed me, one, to come into this with a level of almost calm, like, look, it feels crazy, but it's actually not. Or, oh my God, this is the best thing ever. And it's good, but it's not the best thing ever. Um, and then it also has allowed me to sort of bring this like, so at the end of the day, what, how can we truly drive change? And that very often is through a public policy um, um, agenda or public policy lens. Yeah, that's a good point about rolling with the punches, isn't it? Because um, you have to do that in politics. And increasingly, that's the world of communications with we'll, we'll talk about that a bit later with the joined up world of social media and the, how everything's 24 seven, but just right. having that sense of perspective and the highs and lows, and just be sort of evening those out and being able to look at them calmly and in context. And that's, that's what clients are looking for, isn't it as well? They, they want that uh, you know, sage counsel yeah. on someone panicking or over-celebrating all the time. Or do you know what, what I really find, and I think this is why I love my client work so much and, and my happy spaces when I'm advising clients is, um, you know, what clients very often I think buy is not the best idea um, or the best presentation or the best history, but they buy confidence. 
And when they feel like, you know what, I'm not crazy about this idea, but I feel like this is a person or a team that I can work through things with. And I have confidence in the way they think. I believe that they um, have integrity. Um, I believe that they are competent. Um, and when, you know, the poop hits the fan, um, this is who I want to be with. And I think that that's what our clients want, particularly now, as you said, there's so much going on and you almost feel like you're at battle every single day. And our clients choose us, I think, increasingly because they're like, you know what? I like how they think it's going to be balanced. It's going to be informed. Um, we are not always going to agree um, but, um, I feel like I've got a good partner. How do you strike that balance? Because it is the client work that most people love doing, isn't it? That's what brings them into the profession. But when you become a CEO, there are so many other operational things and balance sheet things and, and running the business part of it. How do you balance that boss while still being able to do some of the work you love and, and adding value to clients? And do you get as much pleasure out of the other part of the business? Look, I'm one of the weird ones, Steve. I actually love the operational part of it. And for me, a great day is when I touch at least one or two clients and we actually, I can see that we actually are moving an agenda forward. Um, also in that great day is when um, we are trying, we're making progress on some of the change that we're trying to drive from within um, to make sure that Edelman is the most prepared um, um, uh purposeful, profitable, people-first uh, agency and, and really company uh, in, in, in the world, um, or certainly in the U.S., which is what I'm responsible for. And then um, my day is also great when um, I can work on new business. And so for me, the combination of them, and, and I, one of the things I've said uh, to a colleague the other day that I feel so fortunate, I think I'm really feeling sort of the gratitude space of Thanksgiving that um, I have a job that a um, the skills that are necessary happen to be skills that are strong for me. Um, B uh, the skills that are necessary and the work that's needed is actually stuff that I love. And three, it's needed at this place in time. You know, sometimes you can be great at something, but God, it makes you miserable or more often um, you're really, really, really happy doing something, but um, there's just no need for it. And for me, all three of those things kind of kick in in the CEO role, which is why I think it's so fulfilling. Yeah, sounds good. Now, last year, obviously, we saw the racial reckoning in the U.S. We've been debating diversity across the country, across business and in the PR industry for a long time. When uh, an agency, the biggest agency in the world, uh, appoints a black woman to be U.S. CEO, how much of a responsibility do you feel um, by being the f a first? I mean, we've seen people like Chris Foster, who's, who's, who's got a leading role at Omnicom Public Relations Group. Finally, we're starting to see genuine diversity at the top of agency organizations, which maybe we haven't in the past. Talk to us a little bit about that and, and where you think we are at as an industry and, and you know, in, in terms of true diversity and inclusion. Well, I wish you could see me because I have such a um, satisfied, happy, um, proud smile on my face. Look, I feel it every day. I feel what I call the beautiful burden of it every day. Um, and uh, you may recall when we were at the 40 Under 40 event and this lovely young woman came up to me. And um, she said, we are all so proud of you and we are all pulling for you. And 
she said in the most um, generous uh, way possible, she said, you are our Kamala. That almost just, I don't know if you saw my reaction when she said it, but it just really like, it was, it was a, it was a lovely gut punch, but I feel it. I feel the responsibility. Um, I'm certainly not worthy of it, but I feel the responsibility and I take it very seriously. Um, I know that um, you have to see, see it to believe that you can be it. And I'm so fortunate that I grew up with personally and professionally role models that were black women and black people and people of color, um, people who were underrepresented groups, what I call emerging majorities. And I saw them. And so it never occurred to me that I wouldn't or couldn't be one of those people. And so when it happened, um, it was, it felt natural to me, but I don't think Steve that I really understood the weight of it, that it meant so much to so many people. And um, I carry it to work every single day. Um, on the diversity front, for, for me, I call it representation. Um, the words diversity and inclusion actually increasingly um, bother me a bit. Um, uh, inclusion means like I'm not asking anyone to include me um, at their table. Um, I'm inviting people to, to, to my table. If you look at the numbers, um, and Edelman has done a remarkable job with the um, guidance of people like Trish Smith and our new um, U.S. Uh, DEI officer, um, Paul Saidi, that we were able to beat our numbers. We set a, a, a number of 30% by 2020. We're already over 30%. But I won't stop until Edelman in the industry is representative of the country that we that we that we are in and you this is not new to you you know this is really the first time you and i are having a chance to talk talk um but um you know i've been in the industry all my life and you have been on the frontier of this you've been someone who has understood it and talked about it for quite some time and and um, me and others are um appreciative of that because you recognize the importance of it I did feel definitely the energy in the room at the 40 under 40. And I felt for those who say there is no no change on diversity or representation, I just thought, well, look in this, look at the talent in this room, look at the spirit, look at the energy. And it was the most diverse group of fantastic up and coming leaders. And I just felt, well, look, we can always look down and, and think negatively about this, but actually I think, and we, we mustn't ever be complacent, but I do think genuine progress is being made. I do think we're making progress, but I think in the first part of your question, where you asked it is, is in leadership. Um, our industry has traditionally been what we used to call a pink industry. It's, there's more women than there are men. But when you look at the leadership positions, um, they are still um, disproportionately occupied by men, um, white men. And when we look at, uh, yes, the pipeline of people of color in our industry is remarkable, but something historically happens when people get to that VP or SVP role and they don't think that they can advance. They don't think that they can move forward. They don't think that they will ever have the job that I have. And we lose so many at that space. And so we're doing well, but as you know, it's in the C-suite that matters. Um, and it's in leadership that matters. And that's where we have to continue to push, push, push and push. Yeah, that's true. And uh, I think with leaders like yourself and Chris Foster and many others, um, people do see those 
those faces they can identify with and that they can aspire to emulate. You know, I think that's what that's that's what that young woman who came up to you at the event was alluding huh. to. So it's good to see. So, yeah, um, and and obviously we'll keep following that at PR Week. Um, we could chat for ages, actually. Um, there's so many topics, but um, let's just finish. Well, you've made a few changes. You've brought some people in. You've uh, Some people have left. Um, Edelman is always the top of the news agenda. We saw that with the climate issue recently with getting dinged a little bit. It's always Edelman yep. to pull out, even though you know many other firms have energy clients and, and advertising agencies. But it is a serious point. You know, what are your, what's your take on dealing with issues like that over the, over, the, you know, over the past few months and moving forward? Because it's, you're right in the spotlight, aren't you, when you're at the world's largest agency? Yeah, and you just have to accept that that's part of it. So when, when we are at the center of, of a conversation, I almost expect it. And I think we have a responsibility to lead um, with integrity and with competency. On, on the climate issue, for me personally, it has been, um, it, it's been maybe one of the richest parts of my career at this stage. This is not, um, this space is not something that I grew up with. And so I've had to teach myself and I've had to be taught so much more about it. And, um, and I credit the, uh, my colleagues internally in really driving that change. And, um, and, and where we are on it is, you know, everything is on the table. We have paused. Uh, we've brought in some experts uh, uh, to advise us. We have our first uh, global climate uh, lead. Um, and um, we have people who are resourcing this and they're pausing and looking at it. And I think at the end of this time frame, we will see, I mean, you know, people say, well, are you going to do this? I don't know. Are you going to do that? I, I don't know. Um, everything is on the table, but we are going to make a decision that I'm confident is not going to be enough for some people. And it's going to be uh, too hard for others. It's going to be not enough for others. You know, and um, but we have to get to a good place. But what I'm most confident and happy about is that the decisions that we make will be informed by our colleagues who are driving a lot of this conversation. It'll be informed by the experts and it'll be informed by um, our ability to lead our clients to a good place, um, regardless of what they do. Yeah, we'll look forward to tracking that and we'll no doubt come back to that conversation. Lisa, it's great to chat to you and uh, yeah. thanks for coming on. And we'll look forward to uh, chatting to you about a few current stories as well. Diana, we thought we got rid of this pesky virus, but then these, another variant comes along, Omicron. Um, so how is that changing this, people's attitudes to the sort of back to the workplace or hybrid work environments? Uh, any Any sort of early indications of that? Yes. So actually, um, right at the start of when we started recording this podcast, um, I saw that the news broke that the U.S. just identified its first case of the variant mm -hmm. in California. So interesting times ahead. But um, yeah, in terms of business impact, um, I I think airlines are um, you know already warning of lower bookings um, and. Uh, EasyJet said it's seeing some softening in bookings as customers defer flights. Um, the CEO there, uh, Johan Lundgren, um, said that uh, conference call that uh, the airline is seeing customers pushing back flights and holidays instead of outright cancellations. Um, 
and in the US, Britain, European, European Union and other governments, um, they've restricted travelers and flights from Southern Africa. Um, Israel and Japan have closed off travel to non-citizens altogether. The UK and others have tightened rules for arriving passengers. So all of that general unease um, about new travel rules and things like that, that's discouraging some business travel. Executives at Nestle, um, including their CFO, uh, they put off a trip um, from Switzerland to London. Some companies are canceling events. So that can be a blow to organizers and participants, but also it affects hotels and restaurants and bars that cater to business travelers. So, um, you know, we'll see what that means now going forward. I know in the next couple of weeks, weeks we're going to find out more about if the current vaccines will, uh, you know, be able to handle the new variant. Um, it's also interesting how vaccine makers are communicating about it. Um, Moderna's CEO, Stefan Bensel, um, told the Financial Times that he thinks that the existing vaccines are likely to be less effective against the Omicron variant. Um, and he said, it, this is based on scientists he's, he's talked to, this is not going to be good. But um, BioNTech co-founder Uger Sahin, who helped invent Pfizer's COVID vaccine, told the Wall Street Journal that his messages don't freak out, the plan remains the same speed up the administration of a third booster shot. So, um, yeah, yeah it's, it's going to be interesting now. How yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm going to take Lisa's advice here and let's uh, roll with the punches and not sort of overreact. <laughs> <laughs> Although we've got to take this seriously, Lisa. It's it, Running a large organization, it must be so difficult to plan because, you know, just when you think you're out, as they say, uh, they drag you back in. Um, that's one of our favorite films, uh, a famous line from. But, you know, you... you how are you treating it at Edelman? Obviously, you're a global company. You get lo lots of insights yeah. around the world, but you're running the U.S. No doubt, you, you know, you've just um, opened a new office in Chicago. Um, yeah. Did you design that with a new hybrid sort of working in mind? And how, how can you plan at the moment when there's so much uncertainty around? I, I am by nature a um, glass half full person, but on this um, – I've been a little glass half empty. I have not thought this was over. I keep thinking that, um, you know, God knows I certainly can't say I anticipated uh, uh, the new variant, um, but, but it just never felt like it was over to me. And so I think I am not feeling as panicked about it because I never thought that it was over. And for me, um, you know, we are following the science. Um, we're listening to our colleagues. In fact, the decisions that we have made about how we uh, uh, return to the office um, is really informed a lot by some of the research that we conducted when we said to people, you know, how do you see yourself returning? What's the minimum or the maximum that you see yourself in the office? And, you know, we're going with a, you know, 60% in the office. Um, you know, it's three days a week. You decide what those days are. And I've said to people repeatedly, if you are terrified of coming back into the office, don't come back into the office because you can't work if you're terrified. And so I think, you know, as we said earlier, you just have to watch it and roll with it and um, always err on the side of caution. Um, and, um, 
and, you know, just sort of see what happens. But for me, Diana and Steve, one of the things that I've thought about is less on sort of as we're talking about, like, you know, following the variant and how we're doing that, but what this means for the future of work. I think we are forever changed by this. And, um, you know, I've been saying return to the office, but it's really like a welcome forward campaign. Like we're moving forward. We're going to be different. We're going to work differently. All of the positive things um, that came out of working COVID style are things that we're going to try to continue to emulate. And, um, you know, like most terrible things, I'm looking for the positive that comes out of it and trying to apply that to our work style in a way that makes sense for our colleagues. Yeah. Was there one thing in the new Chicago space that you brought in that you sort of exemplified that sort of new hybrid flexible working? Yeah, the way the um, so I've only seen the space like midway through. And as soon as I hang up with you, I'm headed over to the office to take a look at it. But the way that the um, areas are spaced are conducive to um, people coming in and doing some hoteling. And if they choose to have a particular space, they can. But, you know, there's a lot of just sort of gathering spaces and it's spread out. And so, because uh, I think what's going to happen is that people will come back, but they're not going to be like breathing on each other. They're going to want some space in between. And so the office is conducive to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there'll be a lot more talk about that as we turn into the new year. Let's talk about TikTok. Diana, you're an expert on this. Um, interesting case study this week, though, with Kyle Scheel and uh, a bit of con- controversial campaign around um, the Come and Go brand. Yes, uh, this is a true case study on basically how important it is for an influencer to be uh, transparent about its relationship with a brand. So um, this whole story begins a little bit before Thanksgiving. Um, This TikTok star Kyle Scheele, or Scheele, um, he posted a video that went viral on TikTok that made it look like he created a massive cutout of himself advertising a fake Kyle Scheele meal. Um, And he placed it in a local come and go store, which is a convenience store chain for anybody who is not aware. Um, And basically he, he, the way that he explained it was the store was not in on the gag. It was a total prank. He wanted to see what was going to happen if he pretended they were selling this meal. So the prank eventually leads to the creation of a real Kyle Shield meal sold by the chain. Um, by the way, none of Shield's videos about the prank had hashtag ad or sponsored on them. And Come and Go also posted videos in response acting confused about the prank. Um, however, Come and Go's director of brand marketing, Matt Reisman, told me that the convenience store was in on the prank all along. They had planned the whole thing with him. And I was actually a little bit confused when I was interviewing Come and Go about <laughs> this a couple of weeks ago, because I was like, oh, that's that's weird, because Kyle is explaining this like this is all a prank that they didn't know about. Um, so I thought that was interesting from the get-go. Um, and then as you can imagine, as people realized that this was like actually that Shield had not been transparent, social media users felt that they had been duped by Come and Go and Shield because they were very, people loved this campaign. They loved this whole thing. They thought it was organic. Um, on Monday night, Shield apologized for not being honest about how the, the meal campaign came about. 
Uh, he explained that um, it's not true that Comingo planned an elaborate corporate marketing stunt and then just hired him to pull it off. He said what happened was that Comingo reached out to him. He came up with the idea and to have his own influencer meal, and the chain told him to go make something fun and run wild. Um, so he said, in retrospect, he should have been upfront and told everybody that, and that was a mistake, and he's sorry. And he said that when he works with companies in the future, he will do better. But feel, people are not. Does. Yeah, and people are not. They're not happy. A lot of people said they were taking away their likes from his videos and unfollowing him. So people are heartbroken that this is not like a real prank that he actually did. There's so, so many layers to this because it's really it, it's, a weird story. Yeah, it just proves that there's no playbook yet for the for this social media. Mm. And I that thought that people, the oddest part was that Cummingo's marketing head was, he was just so happy about this campaign when I spoke to him. Well, and, I, got a lot of, I guess it's the old uh, adage about no publicity is bad publicity. <laughs> so they, yeah, he didn't yeah. seem to see yeah. that this was like a, this was wrong, that he had made yeah. these videos without any transparency. So, uh, yeah, I thought that was very bizarre from the get-go. and. Um, yeah, I guess now, now they see what. Uh, yeah, it's uh, basically they're breaking the the rules as well because they should. Yes. You've got to say if it's a commercial. As Lisa, we, you're getting into social media. It's the, the there is no playbook written yet, is there? So it just proves it got a lot of attention. A lot of people thought it was brilliant at the start and thought, and they were sharing it, saying, "Look at this. We we need to try and do this." But you need some guardrails, and you need to have people who understand how you put these activations together and, and what the, what, you know, what, what the different elements are that you have to include. Yeah. I, you know, I, my mother used to have this thing about something being too cute by half. <laughs> um, and and when, when I, when I was following this and paying attention to it, that's all I could think about. Like this is too cute by half, which is never cute, you know? And so it's just, uh, and I think the rules for all of these things are, like you, Diana used the word transparency, um, honesty, uh, clarity, and you can be creative and innovative, but stay in those realms, you know, but I do think you've got to like be clean on some of this stuff. And when it backfires, you know, our whole platform on trust, that trust is everything. It's just not worth it. Yeah. And it's hard to gain that trust. It's really not worth it. And you can be creative and innovative and cute, but um, like, you got to be careful with that stuff. Like, don't, don't, don't not tell the truth. This is different from a lie, but don't not tell the truth. Yeah, very true. And uh, there will be learnings from that and a case study that will no doubt uh, get a lot of attention. Let's talk about Black Friday we've, and uh, holiday activations. We've just gone through Thanksgiving period, Black Friday, Small Business Saturday, Cyber Monday, Giving Tuesday. And now we're coming up to the holidays. Diana, do these, do these milestones still matter as much as they did, or is it all a, a bit of a mush and it's all, all merged into one? And were there any campaigns or activations that particularly caught your eye? I think they definitely still matter. I mean, there's so many Black Friday. There's so many sales going on. I think people, it all gets meshed up in people's minds. So it's good to have like a certain brand top of mind when you're going shopping on these days. Um, the number, the figures were actually really interesting this year. Um, shoppers spent less during Black Friday and Cyber Monday this year than they did last year. Um, so that's interesting. Um, and 
it's also interesting how, um, for example, Target decided to keep its stores closed on Thanksgiving instead of, um, you know, opening them a little bit early to kick off Black Friday sales. Um, and conversely, Amazon started their sales very early this year in um, early October. So, um, yeah, very interesting. But um, one highlight, I think, this year was um, the New York Public Library's Black Friday campaign. Um, they offered books that were freer than ever with 0% interest loans and free returns. <laughs> Um, so the tongue-in-cheek campaign calls attention to the library's new policy of eliminating all late fines, which was announced in in October. Um, so digital ads shared on social media and email to the library's more than 1.3 million subscribers pointed out that the library's prices have always been fine, but now they're fine-free. Um, so the ads kind of mimic Black Friday retail emails that have calls to action with phrases like show me the free and did someone say free. Um, so yeah, well, our, our reporter, Sabrina Sanchez, would be pleased about that because she loves her books. She's always got a book. <laughs> and, um, yeah, so I thought that was uh, that, you know, it's to get people to sign up for a library card and, and yeah, unlock yeah. the deal for free books. And um, so I thought that was very clever. What about Cyber Monday? I mean, everything's cyber now. That's a bit of an old-fashioned phrase in itself, isn't it? So everything's about e-commerce now. So how does Cyber Monday stand out when that's people true. are pretty much shopping online anyway? It's all, yeah, that's one thing that I'm not quite sure going forward how things will change with that because it really does feel like all of these days are pretty much mostly cyber anyway. So, yeah, that'll that'll be interesting how brands kind of differentiate between the campaigns focused on on those different holidays yeah lisa i remember an edelman client rei the outdoor store yeah did very well yeah. with, with its decision to close on black friday and give its staff a day yeah. off and say get out there and use our products right get out in the in the outdoors yeah. was there anything this year that caught your eye or that your clients did on on black friday and what's your general view of these these sort of retail uh, extravaganzas if you like i think that um I love the New York Library one um, because, again, for me, that is take something goofy and put some purpose next to it, which is exactly what I did, encouraging people to, to read and improve literacy. And as a avid reader myself, um, that one resonated with me. Um, I am intrigued, uh, Steve, by your observation about calling it cyber when everything seems to be cyber now. However, I am reminded, um, having been with family and friends over the holidays, that um, there are still people for whom these things are new. And they're like, I think I might shop online this year, you know, and we think everybody is, you yeah, know, I'm like, oh, God, unfortunately, I do that every night. Uh, but, uh, but for some people, it is still very new for them. And I think that, um, you know, even though it's, it seems silly to me, but it's still, um, it's still new for a lot of people. And, Again, I think it's creativity and innovation, and I think shopping is is a national pastime, and holiday shopping is a national pastime. And in a period like the one that we are experiencing, people want to say that we've just finished, but in the period that we are experiencing, I think shopping 
the relief of shopping, although it can be stressful for some people. And I think that the creativity and innovation that many corporations and many brands put into bringing people into their cyber community or their or their big box store, I, I still find a lot of joy in it. I love to watch it. I think it's fun. Yeah, that's a good point about not, uh, you know, you, you can be in your own bubble and you're not going to plan a national campaign around what the creatives in New York or Chicago are thinking. Right. You've got to look at where your customers are and, and where the mass population is. So that's that's a good exactly. point. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay, well, let's get ready for the big uh, holiday campaigns coming up to uh, Christmas and the New Year, et cetera. Um, well, it's a very fun one that, that um, I can't say anything about it right now, but it will be publishing on PR Week on Thursday. It's a very fun campaign. Oh, that sounds Week exciting. I yes. look forward to reading that one. Um, <laughs> yeah, follow PR Week Diana on Twitter if you uh, want to keep up with all this stuff because she really is all over this. And, and we're talking about Twitter now. Their CEO, with the man with the very impressive beard, Jack Dorsey, has stepped down <laughs> and, um, and he's deleted his Twitter account, I think. Um, so very quickly, Diana, because a lot's been said on this one already, but what does that mean for Twitter and the future of that social network? Well, I have to say that was a great segue. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, he's stepping Pure down. luck. Pure luck. Parag <laughs> <laughs> um, Agrawal, um, Twitter's chief technology officer, is taking over the helm. Um, and Jack said he's decided to leave Twitter because he believes the company is ready to move on from its founders. So he didn't provide any additional detail on why he decided to resign. Um, and basically, but the, the, the handover statements kind of failed to outline a clear vision for the future and um, much needed plans to shake up the company's hierarchy. Uh, nothing was really addressed in that way. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a culture war where free speech is being pitted against hate speech. Um, social media platforms are coming under increasing pressure to tackle misinformation and online harm, such as cyberbullying. Um, so Agrawal will kind of have to meet certain goals in this way. Um, he'll have to meet their aggressive internal goals. Like the company said earlier this year, it aims to have 315 million monetizable daily active users by the end of 2023 and to at least double its annual revenue in that year. Um, he was also previously tasked with finding a leader for Project Blue Sky, which is a research project that Twitter launched to establish open and decentralized standards for social media platforms. Um, and it could also make it easier for the social network to enforce restrictions against hate speech and other abuse. Um, so I think that those will be things he's kind of focused on and, um, it, it's kind of much needed for the social network. Yeah. He's, I mean, he's been under pressure from activist shareholders for the past couple of years. And, uh, you know, there were people saying, well, you're, you're also CEO of Square. How can you sort of give enough attention to Twitter as well? I mm -hmm. thought that was a really interesting comment about the founders. And we've talked about that a lot with Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg. There's yeah. a school of thought, and certainly I agree with this, that they'll never really change until the, the until the founder is out of the CEO chair. And if you look at Google or Microsoft or others, you can see mm -hmm. the way they've evolved. So, so many layers to that. And then, yeah, the other guy, Brett Taylor, is uh, um, the other executive who's been elevated in this, but he's tipped to one day take over at Salesforce. So um, all change there, although, you know, Twitter is 
kind of you know people thought it would sort of um just fade away after you know it's higher profile during the trump administration but it's uh it's still certainly a, a platform that i'm i'm a big fan of but uh, yeah we'll see yeah, we'll here. see what's next for the man with the big with the big beard he'll, he'll be <laughs> <more> square <laughs> all right let's just finish by talking about agency m a it's been a very hot market this year and icr has taken a bit of investment from a from a group uh, diana yes so um Global Strategic Communications and Advisory Firm, ICR, has secured its largest investment from Global Investment Group, CDPQ. Um, I do not want to try pronouncing it. Come on, French accent, Diana. Give it some <laughs> Canadian French. Uh, you can do it if you would like. Um, I, uh, <laughs> I studied Spanish in school, so um, I, I'm not even going to try this one. Um, but see, I, uh, I grew up 25 miles from France, so I'm going to say case, case de depot et, et placement du Québec. Beautiful. That's, that's my best. <laughs> All right. um, so um, CDPQ has joined ICR <laughs> team members and InvestCorp, which became an ICR private equity partner in 2018 and will remain an investor. Uh, and the investment comes at a time when ICR is looking to continue its growth in 2021, um, which saw organic revenue grow 70% to almost $200 million as it hired more than 175 employees. And the investment will support ICR's continued growth and expansion, including accelerating the firm's core business, investor communications, corporate communications, capital, markets, advisory, and ESG. Yeah, the wider issue here, um, and Lisa Edelman went back in with an acquisition this year of Basilina, a DC firm which you've sort of um, folded and, and made a, a sort of global affairs mm -hmm. offering. There is a lot of heat around this, the agency world at the moment, isn't it? Isn't there? And what's your strategy as US CEO? Are you looking for more acquisitions? How, is, how are you going to approach that as you move forward? Yeah, I mean, I, my, my answer is similar to the one on climate. Any and everything is on the table. And Similar to even the conversation about Jack Dorsey, I also am somebody who embraces change. Um, and I recognize that uh, people are in positions and then they decide to do something different. Um, I think Dorsey's decision to move on, I often applaud it when founders on their own, assumedly on their own, um, decide that, you know, I, I've done what I need to do here and I'm going to move on to something else and I'm going to give somebody else a shot. Similarly, with uh, mergers and acquisitions, I think that, uh, you know, when they are done in a respectful, uh, thoughtful, collaborative way, they make a lot of sense. And um, it certainly is part of our business strategy is we are looking at things. And um, partnership is really important to me. I think it's a, it's a nice way to infuse talent, um, energy, enthusiasm, a different way of thinking into an organization. And so I, I'm, I'm all about it when it's done well. Yeah, well, we'll be interested to see how that plays out in 22. Um, Lisa, thanks so much for joining us. It's been great to chat to you. And congratulations on the, the, the good start you've made at Edelman. And um, looking forward to, to seeing where you take the U.S. part of the business. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Thank you for your hospitality. And um uh, I am a fan of your brand and um, uh, keep doing what you're doing. 
Thank you. We we appreciate it. We appreciate your support and everybody else in the industry over these last couple of years, especially because it's been tough for everyone. But um, thank you, Diana. Great to do a show with you again. Thank you. You too. Yeah. And uh, don't forget our Hall of Fame. That's our last live in-person event of the year on Monday, 6th of December. That's in New York. Going to honor some fantastic PR professionals, including Barbie Siegel, actually, uh, from the Edelman family. So, um, Whom I adore. Adore, adore, Eagle. That's going to be a great night, really good night. Um, We're open for Women of Distinction. Entries to that was where we celebrate women in PR. It used to be called the Hall of Femme. We've rebranded it as Women of Distinction. Mm -hmm. If you've got someone to nominate for that, make sure you've got that uh, moving. And uh, we're about to... Put, push out our salary survey to, for 20, uh, mm. the 2022 salary survey. So make sure you take that survey. It won't take you long, but it will really help us assess the state of the industry. So uh, look out for that one. But that's all we've got time for this week. We'll see you next time on the PR Week. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of the PR Week. To find more episodes, visit prweek.com.